0: hello you're listening to underscore a podcast by the chicago graphic design club dedicated to bring you conversations with chicago's creative leaders on this podcast we'll explore the craft theory and practice of graphic design plus discuss bold ideas that push the boundaries of what's possible and ways in which we can create a more thoughtful and inclusive community To learn more about us, visit our website at www.chicagographicdesign.club or find us on social media. Special thanks to the Chicago band 80 Slang for our theme music. Hi, everyone. My name is Christian Solorzano, and today I will be your host. I'll be speaking with Dan and Sophia partners at the design studio, The Narrative, which focuses on brand strategy, book design, web design, data visualization, you name it. And not only are they business partners, they're also life partners, which is really exciting. I hold The Narrative dear to my heart because in 2020, they were amongst the first to give a lecture with the Chicago Graphic Design Club. They shared the process behind the brand identity for a Mies Vanderoo building in Chicago and you could find a link to that on our website. So thank you, Sophia and Dan, so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, I recently discovered that both of you are no longer in Chicago and you've moved to St. Louis. So I wanna hear a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard the term an uh, Irish goodbye, uh, but that's pretty <laughs> much what we did is when you leave without saying anything. Um, it was very hard to leave. Uh, Chicago, and it's very much a family-based decision. Um, two years ago, almost two years ago, Sophia and I had a little girl, um, and one year of being parents and running the design studio uh, seemed to be quite a daunting task. Um, and then we decided to move closer to Sophia's parents, who live right down the street from us, uh, and who, who have been really wonderful and are very active in our daughter's life, and it's a beautiful thing to see. But we um, have some very good things lined up here. Uh, we are currently working on designing the brand uh, collateral for the St. Louis AIGA design show coming up this spring. And I'm going to be teaching at WashU uh, next week. Um, and we're still very active in Chicago. We still have our Arts Club membership, and our clients are still there. Sophia's been back uh, a couple times uh, in the year, almost year that we've been gone. Um and it's always going to be a very special place to both of us and um, uh, in, in our hearts forever.
0: Yeah, and I see that you're, the obviously the listener can see what you're wearing, but you're wearing some Chicago apparel, so yeah. you're still representing. Awesome, great. So um, I really want to learn about the story of how the two of you've met, because I think it's really interesting that you're both... You're both partners in business, but you're also life partners, and I think that's that's really interesting and and I want to know the story.
1: Yeah, so I had started um the narrative after graduate school in 2012 and and um in I started by myself before Sophia and I met, it was we met the following August and um, we actually met uh, at the Design Archive uh, 13, uh, the judges night, um, which was over on at the old creative go round uh, near the Kinsey Bridge. Um, And when I first walked into the event, um, I see this man. And he's frantically waving his arms at me. And, and at first thought, I thought, I looked at him, I was like, maybe he's a disheveled resident from one of the local men's shelters or something. Um, but then I realized it was tomato legend Bob Zini. Yeah. <laughs> and what had happened was at a previous design event, um, Bob had lured me into his den of immorality and um, convinced me to make a wager of 20 dollars on the Bruins in the uh, Stanley Cup that was going on against the Chicago Blackhawks and the Bruins were the superior team but in game six they had a 17 second brain fart and lost the series and Bob had been stalking me trying to go to design events trying to shake me down for his 20 bucks (laughs) so um so I gave him his money um and he kind of scurried off uh presumably to the bar um but um However, before he did that, he introduced me, he turns and says, Dan McMahon, I'd like you to meet Sophia Karash, and he introduced me to the most wonderful person I've ever met, Um, and my life and the narrative has been forever changed uh, because of that day.
2: I I remember that evening, the first question Dan ever asked me was, who is your favorite designer? Almost like a test or something, and I thought... (laughs) I remember I said Ellie Sitsky, and I remember we just spoke all evening about design.
0: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I so that was in that was in twenty thirteen, the, the archive event. Okay. Yeah. So I I was that the year that was that was the year that Nick Adam and Matt Wazinski did the identity for, it, right? Yeah, okay. Exactly. So so I, I was probably there somewhere like volunteering in the background. So Maybe, but if I was, it's cool because I was there on the night that the two of you. Yeah,
1: no, <laughs> who knew? Uh, you know, it was. Uh, was that the last archive
2: too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Sophia's book actually got into the uh, was a judge's choice uh, that year. Her thesis book, mm-hmm. which is
0: pretty good night for you
2: and <laughs> <In> everyone.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so I want to go back into. I want to hear about um your your childhood but specifically how you the both of you got interested or got immersed into the world of design. I know for you Sophia you grew up immersed in creativity. I read that you were involved with um building miniature sets and painting and a lot of theater type of stuff. So tell me a little bit about yeah just some of the inspiration that, that was pulling you when you were when you were a, a child or growing up.
2: Yeah, um I was born in Kharkov, Ukraine, um, and lived the first two years of my life in an art school dormitory as my parents were finishing their um graduate degrees at Ksada, which is the Kharkov State Academy of Design and the Arts. So in some ways I was in design school since birth. Um, Apparently, my mom used to take me to watch my dad play bass guitar in, in the college rock band. I wish I could remember that, but I don't um unfortunately because of the war now people know a lot about uh where i'm from um i think um according to unesco over 20 cultural sites have been damaged in kharkov so far since the war but um as far as i know Ksada is still standing um so that is great um the department they studied in was just called grafica Um, which is an interesting concept, uh, basically that translates to graphics and it included traditional drawing and painting. So my parents can really draw, um, theater set design, graphic design, typography, as well as illustration. Um, So I feel like, from the very beginning, I had a very interdisciplinary um, understanding and approach to design, um, which I think affects the way that we really think about Design of the Narrative too, uh influenced by this um, creative work that um, my parents had always been doing and collaborating on, which I witnessed growing up and oftentimes um, participated in. Um, So those were my earliest, but also the greatest influences on me. Um, One of my earliest memories, and my parents still have this book, was staring at this large white cloth book, and it had this really thick spine with big, juicy, high-contrast black letters, Um, and I would stare at it as I was falling asleep, and it said something at that time that was really moving serious to me, Plakatkunst, which later I understood understood as German for poster art, um, you know, my dad would set up still lifes for me when I was a really little child, um, and always spoke to me pretty seriously, almost as if I was an adult about, you know, form and light and composition and his own creative ideas um my father at that when I was a child did a lot of theater set design and so I would take walks in the snow with my dad and we would like s- gather supplies for him to build theater sets one that I remember uh, specifically was finding small pieces of wood to build this tiny model train car um, which he made look really dilapidated on the outside but in the inside it was really bourgeois um, with with little tiny red couches, a chandelier, and little lights that actually switched on. And it was a theater concept for a play based on the poem Land of Scoundrels by Yesenian. Um, And my father continues to have an illustration practice and teach. He actually um, just came out with a um, graphic uh, novel um, based on a boy's own story, um, which is a novel uh, by Edmund White. and um, he, we continued to discuss art and design. So I think that really um, solidified, you know, a lot of my earlier creative endeavors. Um, Russian animation was also a big influence on me um, during Soviet times. Um, a lot of artists and designers weren't able to fully express themselves um, in terms of creating kind of more serious personal work. So a lot of them actually, um, worked on children's um, animation, and particularly the work of Yuri Norstein and his wife, who rarely gets credit. Her name is Francesca Yarbusova. their stop motion animations like Hedgehog in the Fog and Tale of Tales are just poetic magic Um, and what they do is actually they layer multiple glass plates with cutouts of little characters and the way that they move and as the camera stays still those glass plates move um, as the cameras shooting and um, it's just absolutely incredible to, to watch um they're actually for the last 40 years um they're still uh, alive and making um animations uh, they're collaborating on an animation called the overcoat and everyone's been waiting for it to come out for 40 years now and they're still working on it um there's an interesting youtube video i watched recently i think it's called the animators who've Sp- 40 years on a single film um but there's there's a lot a lot more soviet animation that's really great and i think film inspired me too um there's a soviet armenian art film that's called the color of pomegranates um, by Parajanov, that also had a big impact on me um, just because every single still of that film is almost like a well-composed painting. It's really visually evocative and beautiful um, storytelling. Um, You know, after immigrating to the US, I went to a performing and visual arts high school um, in Houston, Texas, and that really prepared me to apply to art school. Um, and then I went to undergrad at MICA in Baltimore, I'm still unsure of what my major would be. Initially, I was deciding between painting and illustration, um, eventually moving into um, choosing illustration. Um, although my I was a little bit of a black sheep because my uh, interest didn't align with the other illustration students. I wasn't into anime or any of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And sure slowly but surely through my illustration work and because of my love for book and book design, I ended up also doing a concentration in graphic design. Um, and grad school at SAAC, once I moved to Chicago, was really my first opportunity to solely focus on design um, and became my entree into teaching. So that's how it evolved.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you're you're pretty... Pretty fortunate to have that upbringing, just immersed in creativity. Was there, was that, was there at, ever at any point another career or something else that you considered doing that was not in in the in the arts, or were you pretty set on on doing that?
2: You know, I was pretty set on doing it. I think during in in the research that I did. For For my thesis in graduate school, I discovered a lot of my interests. I think if I wasn't a designer, I'd maybe do research relating to anthropology or material culture studies Um, that really interested me. um, But that was only at, uh, I only discovered that at the graduate level. Um, I think it was because I lived in four what are now four countries before I was eight. And each time I had to leave things behind and I became attached to objects um, because each time we relocated, um, our heavy things accompanied us and they were like unpacked and rearranged. And uh, I think each move increased the emotional value that I associated with these objects. And um, also, perhaps the fewer things there are, the more you're aware of each individual object and its function. Um, and uh, perhaps, as an influence during uh, Soviet times, uh, you know, I became really interested in why people were so preoccupied with things, you know, because it was difficult to find things and people would trade things for other things and they were fixing and making things. And so, this like Mm-hmm. I called it like a thing predicament that people had um, allowed for a lot of creativity to flourish, especially when it came to like repurposing or augmenting and making new different kinds of objects. And um, many people created um, unique objects for themselves and their families. In my um, thesis work, uh, one really great example that I find is called music in the Ribrach, which means uh, music on ribs um music on ribs were like homemade records and they were made on uh old hospital x-rays that people sourced um and sold on the black market um if any of your listeners are interesting there's a really cool website called xrayaudio.com and you can actually see and listen to some of these recordings and so i um really got fascinated with material culture studies Mm -hmm. um which I think at University of Chicago, there used to be a material culture studies department. Um, uh, There's a really great writer, Bill Brown, who wrote Think Theory and other like articles. And so I think those kinds of um, avenues and research, I think, would be possibly an alternate
0: path. Yeah, because I noticed through looking at some of some of doing some research about some of the work that you've done, there's there's a big there's a big component of it that is about the narrative, like about narrative and storytelling. And and it just seems, I mean, pretty, pretty appropriate, given the work that the two of you are doing, even just the name, the narrative. Um, and then I want to hear a little bit about about you, Dan, I I discovered a fun fact about you that you started your design company, a, a design company, when you were 14 years old. Um, yeah. What was, what, tell yeah. us, what was that?
1: Um, yeah. So I was raised in a small town called Prospect, Connecticut, in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut. Uh, we had one stoplight and no high school. Um, and if I could borrow a quote from, the great Irish writer Brendan Behan. Uh, the only culture we had was agriculture, <laughs> um, and but my uh, and I was the only child, and but we did three of us did travel a lot. Um, my father's part of a rather large Boston Irish family. It's about a two-hour drive from where I grew up, and um, we did travel a lot to uh, uh, when I was younger, which made a huge influence on me. Um, And, you know, in the, probably the early 80s, I was really fascinated uh, with baseball. was really in the baseball throughout the 80s. And I was fascinated with the logos of the teams um, that were, uh, and this was at a time when baseball was flirting with modernism. And you kind of had those awesome, you know, like the Montreal Expos logos and the the, uh, Milwaukee Brewers logo, where there's typography mixed and it's kind of a duality of form Um, that baseball hadn't really seen before and I was really pretty fascinated with these. my use of drum Um, and um, that was like around the late 80s uh, I want to say 87 88 when I was in middle school um, my uh, I started getting into skateboarding and we had this like feral little skate crew um, in our town and We'd be you know getting chased around for various shenanigans by you know mm-hmm. one cop in town or the mayor that's been the mayor since 1978 and still is um <laughs> mayor bob um but we found skateboarding and like this was at a time where you would get a real thrasher magazine in the mail and yeah. you um or at a skate shop if you could get the one um and we were just absolutely fascinated with the graphics and everything around it. It was like every, every magazine or catalog or video that we get was like a whole new world that we'd see outside of our little, you know, kind of pocket in Connecticut. And this was that time was like Vision Streetwear logo. Like, I remember like realizing the Paul Peralta logo had three P's in it and it was just like mind blowing. it was this really you know just obnoxiously adolescent design logo for limpy's clothing um once i figured out what that meant i thought that was hilarious um like you know it's funny because you walk down state street now and you see that skate shop over there and it's like the santa cruz hand you know on in the window and like i remember seeing that when it first came out like in a magazine And we were just like our minds were just absolutely blown by it and you know we we were just totally geeking out on these brandings of graphics. And I wasn't very good at skateboarding, but I did enjoy the graphic part of it. And mm-hmm. um, we uh, also, there was a lot of, you know, pretty much by default, you start to listen to punk rock and, you know, heavy metal and hardcore was kind of in the peripheral then. So there was a lot of kind of cross culture between them, which there always has been. And, you know, I think punk rock, when I look back at it, you know, it has a really a way of energizing ideas and it certainly did for us um, at that time. And kind of that skate-punk visual culture was like a huge influence that I think probably still is in some way. And yeah, I was around the age of 13 or 14. Um, you know, we saw this stuff and we wanted to do it. So I started a t-shirt company, um, a skateboard clothing company named uh, Gracie Skates, which was named after my Airedale, which was her name was Gracie. Uh, the logo was this crude silhouette of the dog um, I worked on it with uh, an incredibly creative friend that I grew up with, and Chris Swirsky, who's actually a UX designer now and a uh, drummer for uh, the iconic post-punk uh, indie band Kimono Dragon uh, out of Connecticut. And like we had a little skate team and like merch and everything was DIY. Um, you know, I was we were making hand handmade T-shirts, painting with stencils. And, um, you know, we I would was cutting and pasting typography on my mom's Mac. You know, I probably had like 10 typefaces. And I would make these little eight page catalogs, just cutting and pasting. I'm going to have my dad make photocopies of my work. And then I, you know, staple. And, you know, we we were like, this was a time where it was like, there was this great skateboard video called uh, the Search for Animal Chin. So we were trying to make like promotional videos, like our skateboard heroes. And these were like, just <laughs> I mean, we're like editing with like the actual video camera on a VCR. Like, I, I'm not even sure how these things were even made. <laughs> um, And but we would all look at it as, you know, we just saw these skateboarders doing this and this is what we wanted to do. So um, and stickers were a really big deal. Um, And what what I discovered is that like the local politicians would leave like bumper stickers at like coffee shops and places around town. So I would just go and just grab stacks of them and take them <laughs> home. And take my mother's uh, nail polish remover and you know, basically bore out all the ink and then just tag it with Gracie's Gates, cut it up a bunch of stickers and pass them out um, and to our friends and to whoever. and um so we were just kind of doing this, and we didn't know what we were doing. You know, it was pure you know, just pure of following our heroes. We didn't know what graphic design was or anything. And then one weekend, I was up. In Boston, visiting my grandfather, and I have uh, 21 first cousins on my dad's side. Um, as I said, a moderately sized, big Irish family. Um, most of them were older than me; like 17 of them were born before me, so I was kind of later in the pack. And it was pretty common at that time. My grandfather lived in uh, a three-decker apartment in Boston that he owned, and a lot of my cousins, after graduating college, would go and live with him. You know, for you know, uh, as they started their careers in Boston. So I'd go up and visit, and they were all older than me. So I'd go upstairs, and uh, it was infinitely cooler than my grandfather's apartment because they had, you know, cable television. Um, and so I would bring my, you know, Gracie Skates catalogs and maybe some t shirts and try to peddle some t shirts up there. And uh, one of my cousins had a roommate who was a graphic designer, his name was uh, Ted uh, Dietert. And he, like, was a graphic designer, he immediately recognized. Guys, that this you know, 14 year old's got a saddle stitch catalog. Um, <laughs> and he saw my mother in the trip and, like, took her sides like, hey, you know, do you, do you know what graphic design is? And she's like, no. I was like, does Dan know what it is? He's like, no. I was like, well, he's doing it. Um, <laughs> you know, he may want to look into this. So, um, and fortunately, you know, I had a really great art teacher. I was in high school by this point, going to Holy Cross High School in Waterbury, Connecticut. And my art teacher, uh, Michael Marsiglia, uh, was incredibly, you know, um, uh, encouraging, and was kind of this lone beacon of nonconformity in the Catholic school that you know we all really enjoyed. Um, and you know, after that, I moved to Boston uh, to go to Northeastern University, where uh, I got an undergrad degree in graphic design. Um,
0: I'm, I'm very curious about um, what brought you to to Chicago um, after okay. all of that. After all of that, what 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 motivated you to to come here?
1: Yeah. So, you know, like I graduated in nineteen
0: ninety eight and um, you know,
1: right before the dot com. I think I had about, you know, maybe a year or two months before the whole economy crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time Boston didn't have a lot of design studio jobs and they were very much like everything you needed design studio experience in store to even be considered. So it was like just unattainable. You know, I'm not even sure how, you know that happened but so I ended up working a variety of in-house jobs for the next 10 years that you know range from good to horrific um and I had a good job that I lost in 2003 uh which I didn't know was going to kind of be the start of a about a 15-month category five shit storm uh, that my life was yeah. uh that started with that and it culminated with um uh the loss of uh, a friend of mine uh, Sergeant John Owen in the uh, Second Iraq War. Uh, he was killed during the uh, Battle of Fallujah, and his that loss uh, was a catalyst for change uh, in my life. Um, he died doing what he wanted to do, um, and it he inspired me to kind of follow my own dreams, but also to be in service with what I'm doing and not just have it to be solely to make money. Um, at first I was uh, I did some volunteering um, like I volunteered as a playtime activity leader for uh, horizons for homeless children, uh, which basically you run a playgroup uh, once a week, I did that for about two years um, which actually prepared me for now uh, in a strange way. Um, and I also did some canvassing for then Senator Barack Obama, who was uh, running for President in New Hampshire during primary so uh, because of the war. I wanted to um, get involved with some politics uh, uh, and try to not have people have to go through something like that, because it's absolutely uh, horrific. And, you know, miss, around 2009, um, I was getting pretty bored uh, with my job. Uh, I, was, I had a pretty good corporate job, but it was just dreadfully unfulfilling. And um, I kind of felt like Boston had this, uh uh, bar stool sports culture that was going on that um I didn't really agree with and um you know I needed a change so uh I started applying to grad school I got into UIC uh, I sold my car so I could buy a laptop and I moved to Chicago um and then UIC was just such you know incredible experience because I got to Work a lot with Philip Burton and Megan Farrell on my thesis um, and I learned an incredible amount about just the process of design from, particularly from Philip, uh, and the faculty there was, you know, quite amazing. Uh, it's turned over a little bit uh, since I've been there, but, you know, like we had Marshall Austin and Matthew Gaynor and Sharon Oiga and many others. Um, and, you know, the whole grad school experience, I mean, you're, you get to meet so many interesting people from different backgrounds and so forth. And just from around the world. And, you know, like, that's actually the first time I met Matt Wazinski. who he was a year, uh, behind us, uh, at UIC, Barack Berengi, uh, per- Perrin, uh, I'm sure, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Davis, um, Kelly Evans, Jen Tausch, Jillian Cooney. Uh, like we were all there at the same time just people that you end up having, you know, professional and, uh, yeah. uh, uh personal relationships afterwards. And um, I got to work on my thesis project, kind of went back to those days of the early baseball logos, um, which uh, my, my thesis project was called Baseball Iconography as a Civil Religious Relic. So basically I wrote um, and designed a book based off of John Jacques Rousseau's Civil Religion Um, and how baseball typography evolved to represent different regions and cultures because when I moved to Chicago I would always wear my Red Sox hat which is you know a standard issue uniform for anyone that grows up in New England and I thought very strange that people would talk to me all the time about baseball and then I started to realize that it was like much of a bigger story than just you know how the Red Sox did or or poorly they did the day before so um, you know and I started to kind of think about how you know I started to do more research and there was this um, theory written about that America is its own civil religion, you know, because basically Jean-Jacques Rousseau said there's religion of man and religion of God. Yeah. And religion of man, America would be, you know, a religion of man. We have our own rituals, our own um, holidays, traditions, martyrs, and iconography. And then baseball is its own subset within that, yeah. where it has its own um, symbols. So I got to write about that. It was really quite uh i mean it was a dream job a dream project uh to to go through um and to really immerse myself um, yeah. in that
0: i i read in an interview that um the two of you did online and there's a quote that i that i noted down and and one of you said we believe that designing well thought out work contributes positively to our culture as a whole in a brand cluttered world our work is created with a respect for the audience as a top priority Or process demands discipline and it requires a purity of intention. And I really love the last piece of it that says purity of intention. So um, and I think that 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 is a little bit in line with what the two of you have been talking about, just as in 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 regards to design within culture, and then also just design as something that is like interwoven into what 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 you refer to as civil civil religion. So could you expand a little bit more on what you mean when, or just what purity of intention means? I think it's such a interesting uh, choice of words.
2: I think that um, both of our motivations having come from such d- different, <laughs> different mm-hmm. backgrounds and kind of together in this um, collaborative Uh, design process. um, Something that is really important to us both is that any project that we take on, we hope that um, and we make it a point to um, choose our projects wisely. Um, Our ultimate goal is to um, create design that is timeless, we don't look at kind of like trends or um, other things going on and we've developed over the last decade that the narrative has been around and we've been collaborating together a process um, together that um, I think allows us to um, be really thoughtful, take plenty of time for research. and. I I think the path that we've chosen is not the uh, perhaps the easiest or more efficient path to navigate when it comes to client work, but we think it leads to more thoughtful and intentional outcomes. Um, So we always um, budget in and put in our timeline a really long, uh, rather long research process. And I think the way that we Um, educate our clients and um, collaborate with one another and the trust that we have with one another as we develop the work um, and the relationship with the project that we have. Our thoughtful approach allows us to come up with design solutions that, um, are effective for the client, but also are to our own standards. We, as educators and as designers, we hold ourselves to a very high standard. And so, um, good enough for the client is not often good enough for
0: us. Yeah. I like that. I remember when the two of you shared your process, on um, the the redesign for the Mies van der building that the both of you did um, I really appreciated just how much research was done and how much attention to detail went into like the smallest detail and uh, and that's something that I always I always really appreciate um, hearing designers talk about so um, in regards to clients and projects that the both of you work on is there a criteria or what, what type of work excites you, um, excites you both the most?
2: Um, I think, you know, we have four basic criteria. Like one, you know, number one, is it a good fit in terms of our expertise and capabilities? And we're very honest about that. We're not afraid to say, um, you know, we're not the best fit and recommend someone else. Um, that our timeline, um, because of our kind of, um, internal process we need to make sure that we have enough time for project and so we make sure that it fits well with our ongoing project and our teaching commitments um, and then I think one thing we look at very thoughtfully is is there an opportunity in this project for us to make a valuable design contribution mm-hmm. and is this a uh, work that we're interested in doing and we can contribute something that is going to be meaningful and worthwhile um you know i think that is very important to us and i think the last one is just fair compensation
1: i think you know i mean every client is different and you know we customize our process particularly the research phase uh to each client um you know because it's especially at branding if you're dealing you know with the um decision makers often the person who started the company um and maybe there's some backstory with the current brand or logo or whatever so it's a very personal and intimate process so you have to kind of start with that understanding because it's almost like with branding you're almost like um creating what one of the client's children is going to look like if they're the founder or, yeah. you know emotional attachment to it so because of that we're very transparent with our our process um and we require that the you know decision makers be decided before we start that's one thing that's important cuz we don't want to get in a design by committee scenario we avoid that um and um we want to make sure everyone's on board with our process and that the majority of the input's going to come Uh, from the client at the research phase as opposed to the creative uh, phase. And we put pretty strict uh, limits on revisions. Uh, For instance, we'll allow for, if we do a branding project, we'll allow for color changes, but no formal or typographic uh, changes. Um, We don't, if they want to be part of, you know, the creative process or to be an art director, we politely decline to take them on Um, because that's why they're, what they're paying us for, um, you know, and we have one of the few uh professions where unqualified people feel qualified to offer advice, uh, with no experience. You know, yeah. you don't see in the legal field or medical field or anything else. You know, everyone thinks that they can be an art director, um, you know, with Canva or with whatever you know is out there now. Um, yeah. and because of this, we stay as objective as possible and we state the, the goals early, and then you know, we match up you know, we try to. Um, live up to those goals and standards that we set at the initial proposal and we make sure that we satisfy those before we present
0: yeah and and what about um so you're both educators and you've been educators for some time now and how does education um fit within your professional design practice studio practice because i i recently started teaching teaching graphic design and that's a question that I keep asking myself is how could how could there be a relationship between between the two disciplines, teaching and and practice? So any anything to any advice to share for me or anyone that's listening that is also maybe teaching?
1: Um, I think, well, for me, the, the influence from teaching that comes to my work is. I. Um, you know, I can't help it. Like whatever I'm teaching, it really depends what I'm teaching, but I'll find myself, particularly when I was doing a lot of, you know, 2D form and dealing with a lot of black and white, I would kind of be designing a lot like that in my, you know, uh, professional side. But what I enjoy, I enjoy teaching the, you know, a lot of the formal stuff, beginning type, 2D form, things of that sort, which is basically, you know, in my mind is just really about getting students to look at things closer. and for me it's you know just all and i just you know love just all and playing with it um so i find that to be you know and that i find it well always kind of carries over to my professional work and vice versa like sometimes i'll find a, a typeface that i'm working a, a student will find and i'll bring it you know i never would have thought of using that or things of that sort so there's a lot of back and forth um and i think it keeps your your you know the um the foundation skills sharp if you're always teaching because yeah. I can't you know be telling the students to you know kern their ones and then not kerning my own ones where I'm sending something to a client you know like I hear myself in my head telling me you <laughs> should do better than this because at the end of the day you are just really trying to, to get this to see better and then hopefully you'll um, make the world a little more beautiful you know through their work
0: you know. Yeah I've noticed also that um, students they, they, they emit so much energy and so much like enthusiasm for what you're teaching. And it's, and it's, uh, and it just, you could feed off of it. Like, it's just so nurturing to, to, to see what, you know, the new generation of designers are like thinking through and like how they perceive design. And that's been one of the, I don't know, like just one of the most like humbling experiences that I've had professionally is just, yeah, they, they, the students continue to amaze me. Like, sometimes they just do things so quickly, so good.
1: They always pull it together somehow. <laughs> I
2: I've had the same experience. I think it keeps continuing to talk about design with your students, but also with other faculty mm-hmm. and kind of participating in other events on campus keeps... You continually engaged and thinking about design and different things that I think, particularly for us as a small design firm, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we don't want to get too stale or kind mm-hmm. of soak in our own juices too much. And so I think um, teaching allowed us to have uh, other colleagues and conversations with them. Many of those have developed into collaborations or friendships and to also. Um, uh, you know, I've also enjoyed preparing for new classes. I've taught a very wide array, array of classes from like, uh, you know, graduate um courses that are more conceptual uh, to data visualization to image studio just mm-hmm. getting back to my kind of roots in image making and yeah. how to apply image image making to design and i think over the last decade or so teaching um i've gotten much more confident also when it comes to um speaking about design and mm-hmm. that has helped for me to be a much better communicator to our clients in our firm, I've yeah. um, kind of gained a lot of um, confidence and understanding in how to explain and talk about design to designers, but also to non-designers and people of different um, kind of knowledge bases and levels. And uh, that's been um, really great as well.
0: Yeah, I I found that the classroom is, is a really good place to play experiments. And, uh and, and that's something that, you know, you don't always get afforded that luxury when, when you're working with a client, especially when, you know, it's dependent on budget timeline, all that stuff. So, so yeah, it's a, I think it's a, it's a beneficial practice for sure. So, so, um so what are, what are the two of you working on today? What are some, what are some, like, what's, what's, what was 22 like for the both of you? Um, I know that, the poster, um, Dan, that you sent me for the Chicago Graphic Design Club won an award, so that's yep. like really exciting, and it's and it's hanging upstairs in my living room, so I get to look at it every day.
1: Yeah, um, thank you for doing that call too. I mean, that was really a fun project to work on, um, and uh, it was uh, it came together actually rather quickly. Um, would you like to hear the story on that? Or?
0: Uh, yeah, if you could tell us just like a brief story about about the the story. So, um, and then just for the listener, just for some context, um, we have on our website a an open call to designers where we ask any designer, whether they're in Chicago or even other parts of the world, to design an eleven by seventeen poster that answers the question, "What does Chicago mean to you?" and we've received you know dozens of submissions throughout the past two years and and it's always exciting to see um just people's visual language and how they interpret the question and uh and your poster was definitely one of one of my favorites so um so yeah tell us a little bit about about that
1: you know it was actually it was before we moved but a lot of it kind of happened after or before we decided to move um but we we're kind of heading that direction but you know, I looked at the question as if I was answering it to my then-infant daughter. Mm. And um, so, you know, I was very inspired by her to make that poster, and um, it was a collection of ideas and photos I basically accumulated over, you know, the 10 years, 12 years, I guess I was in Chicago. and what was funny about it is it took me about six hours to design the concept and come together, and then about five weeks to actually produce it because um, we did everything uh, by hand. And I had two great uh, assistants, uh, Derek McCormick and Isabella Viazzi, who are former SCIC students. Um, but uh, you know, I really, you know, as I, I used to take a lot of photos of typography and alleys, um, which is kind of where I got part of that image with a mixture of photo montage of the alley and um the lake um i i was kind of fascinated when i first moved to uh chicago from boston because boston doesn't have alleys uh because all the streets were designed by cows so there's no alleys (laughs) um so uh i never saw anything quite like that um and the alleys actually have signs the few that are in boston um so i always kind of looked at them as a typographic antique store uh there's always interesting things there's always weird uh Sharp angles too, because you have the bright sky and then the you know the various uh, structures that are in the the alley. But um, yeah, and you know honestly, I think the reason it was so quick to come together is that with the having to use Patrick King's um, uh, big shoulders, uh, big shoulders, and it was like I always wanted to do a stencil poster, and then I saw that there was stencil display. I'm like, okay, that was the easiest type of decision (laughs) I've ever made. Uh, Patrick, let's see if you, uh, you're just, dis- you're displaced. hold <laughs> up. Uh, and it did, uh, I never got to meet him before I left. I actually would have, I think I would have enjoyed uh, meeting with him, but, uh, he seems like a pretty smart guy. Um, and then, you know, I kept looking at it. I needed a compositional element on the bottom, right. And I just kept seeing the lake and the word great next to each other. And I just could not stop thinking about John Massey's Chicago as a great lake poster. And mm-hmm. that's where I just kind of, you know, looked that up and, plugged it in and, you know, it started dancing. And, you know, at that point, we just needed to come up with the the production plan of it. Um, you know, we printed the the base layer and then spray painted the typography on top of it and then put stickers on top of the typography to edit the typography, um, you know, because I really wanted to feel like it was Chicago without being um, too obvious or cliche, uh, which is something that we always try to avoid here. So. And I just wanted to have it, you know, a real Chicago and be like, yeah, I, I know this. This is yeah. you know, this
2: is awesome. Um, and it became a sort of symbolic homage to Chicago right before we moved as well. So we have a soft spot in our yeah. heart for that for that reason too.
1: And I always love that Norman Mailer quote. I remember seeing that the first time I was on, I think I was on the Halstead bus probably about seven years ago. It was a like, domu ad. And mm-hmm. I was like, I just remembered it. And so I just kind of pulled that out of you know my pocket and I always want to do something with the municipal device. It's such a cool little formally perfect uh, thing. And it's all over the place. And no one sees it Uh, when it was intended to be borrowed and used by the community and readapted. So, you know, um, it was just really kind of pulling together a lot of different things. And, you know, it really kind of became a, you know, a farewell note to, you know, a city that did a lot of great things for my career and my personal life. So, Yeah. Great,
0: and, and what other, what other uh, exciting projects are the two of you working on? Anything that you both could share?
2: Uh, yeah, we're um, continuing to work for um, a arts and cultural center in uh, Carbondale, which is in uh, Southern Illinois called ArtSpace mm-hmm. 304. Uh, they are continually expanding. Um, we're actually, even though we're in Missouri now, we're closer to them than we were in Chicago. Yeah. Um, And uh, our new client is Diverse Works in Houston. Uh, They're an arts organization as well. And we're working really closely with them um, to uh, really rethink um, the way that um, they position themselves um, in the art world in the US and abroad. Um, They're really wonderful. We're working on redesigning their website right now
1: um and locally yeah and um as i mentioned we started you know we're going to be doing the branding for the st louis design show and um joining the faculty at WashU, washington university on tuesday uh very excited about that it's a pretty incredible faculty and i've actually found a punk rock soccer club uh here there's a new soccer team um and i'm doing some uh some personal work, uh, for them, uh, which is fun I'm kind of, again, going back to my old days of uh, making things like that. Uh, what's you
0: know. a, what's a punk rock soccer team? Is that? Soccer club? So club. basically there's a
1: new soccer team here, uh, yep. that's starting and there's different supporter groups. Yeah. Um, like, you know, the hooligans, uh, <laughs> in Europe. uh, kind of like that, except it's all people that like, uh, listen to punk rock. So like, um, and then go to shows together and also, you know, uh, soccer games. So, it's
0: fun. That's exciting. I like that. Um, and we'll include, um, I'll include, I'll, I'll make sure to include a, a link to your poster in and that, in the notes for this episode. Um, and then I want to ask you another question. And this is a question that, um, we, we ask everyone that we, that we speak with on this podcast is, um, what does community mean to you, to the both of you? Um, you're in a new city now, but you, you were, you were in Chicago for some time and, and I always just enjoy hearing, hearing people's answer to that question.
2: As someone who has been part of so many different communities and so many different cities and so many different countries, for me, it's having being part of, uh, whether it's like a city or a group of like-minded people um, I was always kind of an individualist because I didn't belong. I was never, you know, um, in the place where I was from. And that allowed me, I think, to, um, share interests and kind of create little mini communities wherever I am, you know, currently I think, you know, Dan, as my business partner my life partner, and our, our daughter is like the core of my little community. Yeah. And I think we have other uh, interests like design that connect us to people. But I think as um, I'm always interested in other people and their experiences. And so I can relate to so many different kinds of people and through so many different kinds of ways and experiences that I've had. I think Chicago was a really great place for being part of so many different kinds of communities because it was so diverse. And I just loved being able to take the train or just go on a walk and you would walk to one neighborhood and it was one kind of community and a certain kind of aesthetic and certain kind of food. And then continue to walk and you end up in a different community. Um, it's something, that's something about Chicago that, that I definitely miss, um, but now that you know we have Zoom and post-pandemic, I feel like it's even easier for us to yeah. connect uh, virtually than before and form um, online communities, yeah. which which I was not too much of a part before several yeah. years ago.
1: Yeah, you know that's the thing. It's it seems like every every definition has been turned on its head since the pandemic. Um, but you know, like. Joe Strummer said, without people, you're nothing. Mm -hmm. And I I kind of would start there. You know, I think that's really and just finding people that you do have common interests with, but that are also want to make your world better around Mm you or whatever um, it is that the community is based off of. Um, You know, and that could be through its own cultures or language or, um, uh, you know, in our instance, the design community, you know, and the Chicago design community was really pretty remarkable. Um, I've lived in, you know, now three cities and Chicago's design community had something that was very special. The fact that it's big enough to have a lane for, you know, your programming um you know with all the other things that have been on and more established that you know a um that there's a openness to that um and because everybody understands that the community is something that is you know you need to preserve but it's um you know it's just for you to care for temporarily and that the people that were the running the design community 20 years ago you know we look to them for advice and so forth when they do come around but it's like you know everyone has their turn that they need to um kind of step up and run things um and make it better for everyone else because if you don't do it who else will um, so, you know, yeah I, i've
0: been i've been thinking a lot about the word stewardship and this idea of everyone being able to play a role and being able to contribute and I think that's, that's something that I've noticed in Chicago is that there's a lot of people that step up and find ways to, yeah, to, to, to make some impact. So that that's, that's, that's what I love about this city a lot is that there's always someone that's willing to raise their hand and, and roll their sleeves up. So I like that a lot. Great. So, um. So anything anything exciting? Um, I know I know the both of you talked a little bit about some of the projects that the two of you are working on. Um, but anything else just in the world that's 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 influencing the two of you? Um
1: I've been, I, well can't say I've been watching much. Re- reading Matt Wzinski's book, um, which is you know pretty uh amazing um piece. Uh and we spend a lot of time, we have our daughter, who's really the source of a lot of inspiration right now. I hate to sound like the gushing dad, because um, <laughs> you know, I became a dad rather late. I mean, I was 45 when she was born, so I heard everybody do that, uh, you know, for the last 20 years. Um, so, um, But she does offer a lot of inspiration, just being able to see the world in a different way and the way she looks at everything and develops and be you know one thing that we do enjoy with st louis is taking her to the art museums they're all free here so we take her there just to run around and she enjoys the you know the beautiful paintings and sculptures and so forth um uh anything
2: I've, I've recently begun to sketch more and i feel like it's was more of like kind of a meditate meditative way for me to relax in the evenings and sometimes make drawings for our daughter or for myself but I started to do a lot more uh writing and a lot more sketching and for me um sketching is almost like a way of thinking. Um, it's a way that your like mind and your body are connected. And, um, you know, whether on paper or digitally, but on paper, I feel like you have to commit in a way that you don't digitally. And I found that through that process, um, it um, provided me a lot of inspiration, because it allowed for me to subconsciously begin to think about or write about the different projects and the different things that we've been working on. I think as we're beginning to prepare and design for this design show in St. Louis, I think we've been inspired by the city a lot and as we're starting to discover um, different parts of it and also like the symbolism and and like the fleur-de-lis and the french architecture and other things and so we've been kind of soaking up also what this study has to offer visually um there's a lot of really great mid-century um typography and a lot of like old 1880s um kind of architecture and um kind of uh 19th century uh aesthetic i think some art as well, it's a
1: really yeah, interesting company Archeco. So the, the era that it was, the city really expanded, you know, in the post-war uh, America, World War II you know, and I think one thing that and this just kind of goes back to probably fatherhood, but also before that with COVID was just to say kind of getting back to more towards the basics of, you know reading books and listening to music instead of screens I've become very weary of you know, the screens, um, and particularly with being an example, if I don't want our daughter to grow up and just see us looking at our phones all the time, cause that's all she's going to do. And it's just, um, it's something that I've been more and more, you know, I'd rather, you know, um, you know, listen to a lot of music, you know, we don't barely watch. We have one television here in our bedroom, but, um, everything else is just music and pretty much since she was born, she's been listening to music, uh, with the serious radio, uh, subscription and just incredible, uh, variety there
0: um but what do what you what, what's the music that, that that plays in the house <laughs> it depends who's home uh,
2: uh our daughter is a very big fan of edith pf because <laughs> i have li- lately been uh listening to a lot of uh french music okay um also
1: when, when i'm uh, we basically split our time with her like um, <laughs> um with about two days a week one day a week i have her and then one day a week sophia has her one day two days a week her parents have her and then mm-hmm. we work back and forth so like there's one day where i have her and we listen to um the stage uh the show called celtic crush by uh a band black 47's lead singer larry Kerwin. Mm-hmm. uh when i was growing up my you know i used to go visit my grandfather and the way i was introduced to irish culture was this radio show that was supposedly still on called the irish hit parade okay and every summer you know we go up and we like the soundtrack was the red sox game followed by the irish hit parade and my grandfather was really, <laughs> was really deaf so you could hear like either of them from like three blocks away <laughs> So, like, to kind of honor that or carry that on, I have her listen to Celtic Crush, but it's not just all traditional Irish music. There's, you know, contemporary and, like, stuff that's coming out of Ireland right now, and, you know, but then, uh, so I have her listen to a three-hour show uh, once a week to get her fully indoctrinated and prepared to be a McManus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um yeah it is there's all different stations but we try to stay away
0: from the news too because it's just too depressing yeah for sure are you both familiar with the rate oh it's called the radio garden and it's um and it's a web-based radio station where it's like google maps like you're able to just move the globe around and go to any anywhere in the world and see what music is playing there and you could get as zoomed as, as, as you could zoom in as much as you want and get like very specific to like you know what's this little town listening to, and um and that's something that I that I do pretty frequently because it's a radio and and some of the songs sometimes you don't know who's singing or what the song is so there's that aspect to it that I really appreciate.
2: Um,
1: yeah. yeah, and so sometimes we um, you know there's a uh, station on there that's all Cuban music we listen to that quite a bit jazz you know Symphony Channel like. Um, you know, we'll jump all over the place. This afternoon, she could listen to Mozart, uh, Buena Vista, Social Club, and, and The Clash within an hour. Um, <laughs> you know, like, it, it totally, you know, when I'm home anyhow.
0: So it looks like your daughter will one day also be on a podcast talking about uh, the music that she was listening to as a kid.
1: <laughs> Quite possibly. You I know. Music's important. But, you know, it's, I and it's amazing just how accessible music is now um you know is might as well take advantage of it
0: yeah I recently just started getting into um record collecting again I, I used to do it when I was younger but I I just missed the because because you know I, as designers like we appreciate the album artwork and 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 the work that that goes into that and I've noticed that I just wasn't I, I just wasn't, I was no longer aware of the artwork that comes with music because everything is just streaming. And, uh, so lately that's been, I've also been like reacquainting myself with, with music and, and buying records that I used to really like as a kid and, and, uh, yeah. And just exploring, exploring new music, going to that website, radio garden and just, uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's been great. And I think that's- It's like, such an
1: important part for our design process too. like always listen to music, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Always do the same thing over and over again, usually, but um, you know, that's just a whole different thing. But. There
2: are a lot of really great record stores here. The first record I bought in St. Louis was Little Richard because our daughter goes wild for Little Richard <laughs> and now we all have a new appreciation for Little Richard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that
0: is awesome. Well, this is, this has been really great. And I hope that um, the both of you come to Chicago again soon to visit. Um, I'd love to, to, um, yeah, to get together sometime and, and continue the conversation. But uh, other than that, I, I just want to say, like, I, I really appreciate all the support from the both of you um, since we started back in 2020. So thank you so much. And, um and yeah. This was great. I enjoyed learning more about the both of you. Thank you so much, you so much for so much the for conversation,
2: answers. and you're always welcome in St. Louis as well. Yeah,
0: and uh, and if anyone wants to reach out to the both of you, um, how could people get a hold of you?
1: Yeah.
2: Hello at the narrative.design.
0: Okay, and our Instagram is just at the narrative design. Okay, sounds good. I'll I'll make sure to include that on the notes as well. Um, but thank you so much. This was great.
2: Thank,
0: Thank you. you. so much, Chris. All right, let's